Well, good morning, Cornerstone. <laughs> so listen, on the sound side, there's a general network uh, challenge that last week and this week. So if I come and go or if uh, the microphones come and go, it's not a mystical spiritual affirmation or the uh, God saying, no, don't listen to that. It's just part of the challenge we're having. And so please be aware of that. Well, good morning. I'm glad to see you. Happy Thanksgiving ahead of time. Um, I hope you have special plans. And man, I have to say the food uh, that I just enjoyed uh, Friday night with you was a wonderful precursor of uh, what this Thursday should look like at my house, and I hope you will enjoy the same. And if you're our guest today, welcome. And uh, Elijah, welcome. Glad you're in the kingdom. Best thing that ever could happen to you just did, and uh, more than you can imagine. And I'm really glad that you're here this day, having just experienced life change from the inside out. So welcome. Glad to have you here. So uh, Thanksgiving. I um, will be at the Burbank Airport tonight. Um, my wife flies in from Arkansas today after being gone a week, and I will be holding signs that say, Welcome home. I'll have three pictures of the dogs. I'll have a leash around my neck, and I will say, Honey, so glad to see you. Um, man, I have a greater appreciation, uh, greater gratitude. Uh, having uh, done in part what she typically does. Um, And uh, I just think Thanksgiving is one of those times where, you know, when you don't have something, it helps you be grateful for when you get it or enjoy it or experience it. So I'll be celebrating Thanksgiving tonight, and uh, Lord willing, uh, she makes it out of Little Rock on time. Um, She was there with her twin sister. My wife's a twin, Karen, K-A-R-O-N, because she has a twin sister, Sharon. And uh, Sharon's from Baltimore area in Maryland. And so Karen and Sharon met in the heartland of Arkansas to be with their parents, 87 years old and 85. And so they've had a great week. And uh, and I'll be excited. So if you hear a hallelujah charismatic expression coming out of the Burbank Hollywood Airport, it's yours truly <laughs> for a lot of reasons. All right, take your Bible. Join me in James chapter 4. You know, as I have had the privilege of preparing for you these last few weeks, I don't know that I've been in a section of Scripture more relevant and more profoundly important for your Christian journey than this one. The whole book of James is full of practical wisdom, biblical wisdom, biblical convictions and the lifestyle of a Christian. Active living faith, not just the proclamation of it, but the actual possession of faith is transformational. Something positional happens instantly, but something practical happens over the rest of your life if you're a Christian, and that's the work of God. It's the work of God to gift you with the righteousness not your own, perfect, impeccable, the righteousness of Christ legally imputed to me. 
So Harry Walls enjoys perfect righteousness. Not because he's perfect, but because he enjoys a perfection. I am robed in the righteousness of Christ. I possess what I couldn't earn. And that's a gift. That's what Elijah got. And if you're a Christian, that's what you have. It's unassaultable. It's unassailable because it's a gift. And when that transaction happens, you move out of darkness into the kingdom of light. You're born from above. Not physical birth, spiritual birth. You become, in the words of Paul, a new creation. Brand new. Regeneration is the way Paul says it to Titus. You've been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Created brand new. It's not reformation. It's regeneration. Regeneration is the birthing of new life. And when new life is birthed in you, it manifests itself. And there is the potential in every group, gathering in every church, to say, I believe. I have faith. James says, if you make such a claim, that claim is validated by your work. Your work doesn't save you. Your behavior validates that you've been saved. This section of Scripture is another installment that says real Christians prove their Christianity because they are not fickle friends of the world, but humble, faithful, covenant family with God. This passage says, by way of its inspired perspective, what's going on in your life potentially and what's going on certainly in the world around us, this appetite, this unending, fathomless passion for self-satisfaction. And James would call it worldliness. And this passage is focused on worldliness and the way worldliness affects your life. Abraham Lincoln, Springfield, Illinois, was uh, walking his two boys, and uh, one of those two boys was crying, and a neighbor approached Lincoln, because the boys were clearly upset, aggravated, and in despair, and the question of the neighbor to Lincoln was, what's the matter with your boys? And Lincoln was quoted as saying this, and I want to begin with this declaration. What is, what is the matter with the boys, Abraham Lincoln? Just what is the matter with the whole world? I have three walnuts, and each boy wants two. The appetite for what I don't have. The conviction that what I need, you have, or the world can provide me, if I will just make it my friend. All right, James chapter 4. Let's read it. And then we'll jump into the section we've been getting to. Chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Altercations, both physical and verbal. 
Why is that going on? That's the question. Rhetorical answer, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? The members of your personal internal humanity is at war with itself and the members of your family and those around you, the human family. The war, the conflict, the altercations, physical and verbal, maybe with weapons, is the result of pleasures. This unending engine in my heart that drives me to self-satisfaction. It's damaging and it's destructive. Is not the source, which is a very valuable insight to have. What's going on with me? What's going on with my family? What's going on with the world around me? It has a source. It's the depravity in my humanity that has determined that I have to have it, and if I get it, I'll be satisfied and I deserve it. Verse 2, you lust. You have passion for. Lust is flavored negatively, but you just strongly desire, literally, and you do not have. There's a frustration. You can't get it. You desperately want it, so you commit murder. Implied in that is somebody has it, and you're going to get it, so you're going to take it even at the highest cost. You're envious. They have it. You don't have it, and you can't get it. So you fight and you quarrel. You're going to take it or you're going to undermine them because they have it. You do not have because you do not ask. Now that's a clue to the real problem. You're trying to find it in somebody else's possession or the world around you, and the reason you don't have it is because you're self-dependent instead of God-dependent. You're independent. Harry's going to take care of Harry. The appetites, the needs, the humanity, the passions that I have, I'm the source, or the world is the source, the world around me, and you in that world have it, I'm going to get it. And the reason I don't have it, James says, is because I don't look heavenward for it. Or if I look heavenward, I have a motive problem. Verse 3, you do not receive... From whom? God, who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That God, that good, generous God, you don't receive it from him, not because he's stingy, but because you ask with wrong motives. You ask amiss. Look at the reason so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Summarized as, because it's about self, it's selfish, it's self-gratification, it's self-satisfaction. This is all about Harry. Harry, the reason you don't have it is because you're not asking God for it. And secondly, if you ask, it's all about you. Verse 4. This is so sobering. Because the person who lives this way, the Christian who is, for the lack of a better word, worldly, they prioritize themselves over God as a pattern of living. You adulteresses, you're disloyal. You betray as a Christian God 
by seeking satisfaction from what is not God. An alternative to God. Verse 4, you adulteresses, do you not know? That friendship with the world, that's companionship, loyalty, affection, affinity. This is whom you're having an adulterous relationship with is hostility toward God. That's adversarial energy. It's not passive. It's not like I'm neutral. I violate a trust, a relationship, a covenant trust. When you become a Christian, you enter into a covenant trust, a relationship with God. He commits to you, and you become His child, and you become a part of the bride of Christ. And when you betray that trust by messing around with the world, by finding satisfaction through the world, when you become the world's friend, and world is cosmos, it's the, the structure of this world system which is dedicated to dishonoring God and is adversarial to God. It is governed by the God of this world, the adversary, Satan. Every structure, every solution that involves fleshly, human gratification in a way that doesn't include God is the world. And when I frequent the world, when I proactively pursue the world, I am adversarial to God. And that's why it goes on to say in verse 4, therefore, whoever wishes, whoever makes a choice, okay, listen, we all slip into this danger as a Christian. He's not talking about the person that fumbles the ball and chases gratification temporarily through a human or worldly solution. But the person who says, you know what? I'm using this vehicle, the world around me, the people around me, my own self-satisfaction. When I wish to do that, this says in verse 4, I make myself an enemy of God. I'm an enemy of God. I'm adversarial. So this is about the denying of God. You want to boil down worldliness? It's the denial of God. It's a crying shame. It's an attitude expressed by the activity that makes me more important than God. It's a worldview that puts my pleasures, my priorities in the primary place. The world. The lust of the flesh, that's passions. The lust of the eyes, that's possessions. And the pride of life, that's position. That's prestige. When I find gratification through those means, I betray God. And I actually become adversarial to God. I'm His enemy. I live in a way that reveals, I believe, that the world and not God is the path to the fulfillment of my passions and the source of the satisfaction outside of God for my own pleasures and passions. And that results in conflict with men. And I'm an enemy of God, conflict with God. 
So this is a pathology on the source and the challenge. But God says, verse 5, remember we spent a good bit of time talking generally what the Scriptures describe. Do you think, verse 5, the Scripture speaks to no purpose, no specific Scripture, Scriptures in general. You're not going to find this verse in the Bible. Do you think that this general revelation from the content of the words of God has no purpose? Now, I'm the New American Standard, he, capital H, that would be a reference to God, jealously desires the Spirit, capital S, which he has made to dwell in us. That's option A. We talked about it. That would say that God wants us. He's loyal to us. And the fact that we would betray that trust and want something other than him is hurtful to him. The other way to translate verse 5, legitimately and I think preferably, even though I'm a New American Standard person, I would say the better understanding to translate this verse is the way the King James translates it, and it reflects the fact that the spirit that God has put in us, little s, my human spirit, lusts to envy Envy is always a negative word, so it's hard to apply that to God. There's a passion in my humanity, in my fallen depravity, that has a sour note to it. It's not pure passion. It's not legitimate in my humanity. It's twisted. It's envious. It's tainted. It's toxic passion. And this spirit in me Lust, it longs with envy to satisfy the appetites within me. That's what's wrong with me. So God wants me, interpretation number one. He desires the spirit, his spirit that he has placed within me, or I really need help because I am really more broken than I could imagine. In my humanity, the reason I am what I am is because the work that has been begun is not finished. I'm not glorified. I get up in the morning with a default spring-loaded position that says, I lust to envy. I want satisfaction. If you have it, I'm going to take it. If you have it and I can't take it, I'm going to envy you for it. I'm going to leverage the world around me, the system. If I'm ungratified or I'm not satisfied in my humanity as a man, I'll go to the internet and I'll find a solution. Or if I'm not satisfied in my marriage, I'll find a person. If I don't like what I have, I'll try to leverage my world in order to acquire what I don't have. And if you have it and it requires me or demands of me diminishing you so that I can look better than you, I'll do that too. I'll slander you. I'll fight with you. I'll wrestle with you. If you live in my house and you're not meeting my needs, there's conflict because I will get what I lust to have. And you will not deny it. 
Anybody agree that that's a problem? See, this is what the Scripture says. Do you think it has no relevance? I'm a Christian. Harry Walls is going to heaven. His work, not my work. But I'm a son of Adam. I'm infected with an appetite for self-satisfaction. I lust to envy. The stuff that's in the world, possessed by others in the world that I think I need. That's the big idea, I believe, of verse 5. It's telling me what's wrong with me. Why this is so hard. Verse 6, the adversative conjunction. But on the other hand, despite this reality, despite this reality that you have, Harry, in your humanity, this default, get up every morning unless you die to self and unless you acquire something you don't have outside of yourself, unless you get help from heaven, you're going to live this pathology, this reality. But, verse 6, He, capital H, God, gives greater grace. And apparently it resonated with some of you. That's spiritual horsepower, because that's what I called it last week. It'll get, get you up the hill. When you push the spiritual accelerator no matter how much of the burden of your humanity and depravity you're carrying, it'll pull the hill because it's greater grace. It's greater than my appetite for myself. It's greater than the attraction and temptation that the world offers me with all of its options. At chapel on Friday, we talked about moral integrity. We had split chapel. The guys were together. The girls were together. And part of what's important to know about grace and God's capacity is there is enormous horsepower to overcome my natural propensity. And the world is saturated with stimuli and triggers the way people dress, the way the media promotes. I mean, you can be a good follower of Christ, seeking to obey Christ, mind your own business, and you turn on the television, you drive down the freeway, you turn on the internet, you're doing whatever you do, minding your own business, if you will, and there will be an intruder. An invitation to want what you don't have and to want it in a way that satisfies on the world's standards. It's quick. It's a Twinkie. It's fast. It's fast food. And you're tempted. But God gives greater grace. Spiritual horsepower. Greater than the power of your flesh. Greater than the spiritual adultery that you've been committing. That grace I don't deserve it. I've betrayed my trust. My life reveals it. God gives greater grace. God's grace is greater than all the adornments of the world. God's grace is greater than all the bad news 
If you're here today and you go through this passage and you have any spiritual objectivity at all and you feel buried by this, this is not meant to bury you. This is like going to the doctor and he says, listen, we've done the test and it's really not good. It looks like stage four. But we have an antidote. We actually have the ability to address this terminal reality, this life-stealing reality. God gives greater grace. So if you're that person, this is not meant to bury you. The diagnosis is good. You want to know. If I have stage 4 cancer, I want to know it. And I'll be glad to hear the words, but we have a solution to this. Brand new. This isn't brand new. This is as old as the gospel. Greater grace. So why don't I experience it? And you don't know how many times I've asked God to help me. I know I can't do it. I keep repeating the cycle. Well, here's a rationale provided by James as what the obstacle may be because there's a therefore after the but. Therefore, verse 6, it says, the Scriptures, God is opposed to the proud. And he gives grace, but gives grace to the humble. So not only am I God's adversary by my worldly choices, by my prideful reaction to my situation, he becomes my adversary. He's resisting proactively. Is that not sobering? I'm not enjoying the blessings and benefits of God, not because there's not greater grace, but because I'm too proud to acknowledge I need, desperately need that grace. You know what I'm doing? I'm going to study harder. I'm going to go to church more. You know, I'm going to give it the food bank. I'm going to crank up my spiritual discipline. Let me tell you where it doesn't start right there. I'll tell you where it does start. I'm dead if God doesn't help me. I humble myself, which is why verse 10 says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you in due time. Turn over to uh, Isaiah. I just want to paint a picture. Sixty-three. Sorry, Isaiah is a big book. <laughs> I can give you a, a reference, an address. Sixty-three. Uh, the reason I chose this passage, and I like to connect Old Testament to the New Testament, because the scriptures being summarized in the text we're in. Do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? So, housed in the Old Testament is illustrative truth in real time about real relationship, God and Israel, God and his covenant people, that helps you see how God is, how we can be, and the consequences of choices we make and attitudes we display. Verse 7, Isaiah 63. 
I shall make mention, says Isaiah, of the loving kindnesses of the Lord, the praises of Yahweh. According to all that Yahweh has granted to us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, that's his covenant people, which he, Yahweh, has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindnesses. For he, Yahweh, said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their Savior, their deliverer. I love verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. I mean, so close is this covenant relationship that when they hurt, he hurts. He's their Savior. He's their loving kindness giver. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them and carried them all the days of old. So that's all the covenant affection and expression. And then verse 10, but they rebelled. They rebelled, the covenant people of God, and grieved his Holy Spirit. Look at verse 10. Therefore he turned himself to become their what? Their enemy. That's a bummer. All of this provision and compassion forfeited. Verse 11, then his people remembered the days of old, of Moses where is he who brought them up out of the sea and the shepherds of his flocks. Like they're, they're wondering, where did he go? Why are we in this desperate condition? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? The one who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. The one who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness. They did not stumble as the cattle which go down into the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name forgotten that we had it he carried us he delivered us he led us he provided for us until we decided he wasn't enough for us oh and by the way we don't like how he leads or provides i mean we ought to go back to egypt where there was too many bricks required for too little resources given that's a better deal than what God seems to be supplying because God isn't providing it in the way we wish he would. And because of that, we rebel. You know what? I'm going to trade Christianity. I'm, I'm just, you know what, God? I can't trust you. I got this. You might not even say it that loud or that bold. Justified self-centeredness is sinful and it's blinding and it's rebellion and when that occurs I make myself an enemy of God and God makes himself an adversary to me 
So, humility says, I have a problem. It's a deep problem, a problem that I cannot solve. And God gives grace to the person who humbly acknowledges God doesn't deserve it. And without his help and aid, I'm going to blow it. And I've got a record of reality to validate Harry on Harry's own is a failure. But God gives greater grace. And he gives it, listen to me, to the humble who desperately acknowledge their need of it. The grace will only be given to those who humbly acknowledge their need of it The first step in overcoming worldly desires is admitting on your own you cannot. In order to taste greater grace, it is necessary to begin by acknowledging my utter and complete inability to help myself and to acknowledge by faith God's ability and willingness to help me. That's the truth of this passage. Verse 7 also has a connecting word because the question is, well, I'm humble. How do I know I'm humble? What what validating characteristics demonstrate that I'm actually humble? Because Harry can say he's humble and not be humble. I've been a Christian a long time. I go to Grace Church. I dress in a suit. I know how to behave. And still not be humble. I can be proud, but humble looking. So how do you know that you qualify with humility that, got, that attracts greater grace? What does it look like? How do I know when I'm humble? What is the voluble, viable and validatable evidence that I'm humble? How does it manifest itself, and what does God measure? Well, the conjunction in verse 7, therefore. Do you see it? That's connected to humility. Humility that attracts greater grace, which I desperately need. So therefore, if I'm humble, ten verbs, five categories. Validation of my humility. Otherwise, I'm proud. Now listen, if you're a Christian, you need greater grace because you're in a world saturated with temptation and dissatisfaction. And you have a pre-bent disposition. So, humility is validated by these actions and this activity. Verse 7, verb number 1, category number 1, Submit to God. And we talked about this last week. Submission is willful, voluntary, because I want to and I get it, arranging myself under the governing leadership of someone else. In this case, God. Hupotasso, which John talked about it, Pastor John on Sunday, wives, submit yourselves to your husband. Same word. This is really right to do because God doesn't have the imperfection challenges that a husband might have. 
Tasso is to arrange hupo underneath. It's to submit yourself. Kittle, the kind of the lexicon, the classic lexicon of word meaning, says this. It is self-subordination that always leads to obedience. So how do I know? How does Harry know he's humble? How do you know? What is the attribute that begins the categorical list that you're going to calibrate your life by? Submission. Willful, because I want to, obedience to the prescribed will of God and the revealed way of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the incarnate word. The Bible is the written, inspired word. So the first step in humility is bowing down and submitting to God in the Scripture. I, uh, I do have an 85-pound German shepherd and uh, walking him three times a day because i got to wear him out so I don't have to deal with what happens when he's got more energy than I can manage. And he's really pretty good on a leash until he sees something he really wants. If I could, I'd pull up my sleeve and you would see a gash on the wrist and a big bruise on the forearm. And before he can go in the back door, he has to sit. So the leash comes up, he sits perfectly obedient. And I'm wonderfully encouraged. I open the door, we have a miniature dachshund, who has something Sully wants. I don't notice. So I open the door, and it's like he's a rocket ship. All of that submission, because of an attraction, became a rebellion. Are you tracking that illustration? That's our problem. Because partial obedience, sometimes obedience, is a good thing. But jerking the leash, moving out of the subordinated position to acquire a possession or a satisfaction is not submission. And that's what happens to me. So this is, and I think I shared this last week, these are ingressive aorist verbs. Two things about it. It's an imperative, which means it's not optional. So you want the greater grace? It's humility. What's not optional in humility? Submission. And when I see it and want it, I got to stay seated. I got to stay in the position. And I've got to wait on the master to give me direction and provision. Because what Sully has in his crate is a bowl of food. But what he wants is what the miniature dachshund has, which is a fraction of what he has. Are you tracking with me? It's a great illustration. (laughs) Because it's so graphic. Submit to God and stay submitted to God. It's aggressive, which means it's urgent. It means if I'm going to get what I need right now, sooner rather than later, I need to bow the knee right now. And I need to keep the knee bowed. And my propensity is to see it and want it and shoot. 
to acquire it like a rocket ship. Number two. So what we've learned so far is the elements that are necessary to the incredible benefit and gain, gain that God promises. Greater aid, and I'm telling you, greater benefit. The bowl is fuller if God filled it. And whenever you can steal from the little one, because you're big enough to take it, is a fraction of what God will give you if you'll trust Him for it and wait on Him for it. Greater aid, greater benefit. The one it's available to, the one who expresses submission. Submit to God, freely and joyfully subordinate your will to God's will in objective obedience. Number two, confrontation. Resist the devil. Verb number two, resist. Antihistamine. It's not antihistamine. It's histamine to stand, anti, against. It's like Barney Fife. You ever watch Mayberry RFD? Barney Fife put up your Duke set, you know? You're not with me. This is so old, it doesn't resonate with hardly anybody unless you got my, my gray hair. Does mark, doesn't it? All right? So this is put up your Dukes. Okay? This is get in the fighting position, resist. Because you have Diabolos, the enemy, the devil. The devil's diabolos, the one thrown down. Follow, to throw, dia down. You see it in Revelation chapter 12 when there's... We ought to look. Go there. Revelation chapter 12. Because part of what makes us successful is resisting the enemy, and there at some, therefore at some level you need to know the enemy. And this is what we know. John 8, he's a liar. He's the accuser of the brethren and he's been lying from the beginning. We also know he's a murderer. So this is not just a wrestling match for prominence. This is a fight to the death. The enemy's never in the game and the world isn't about just bruising you. His system is designed to destroy you which is why one of his names in Revelation is Abaddon the Destroyer. He's a destroyer. If you ever saw anybody demonized or demon-oppressed, it's not good for them. All right, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. Now, the reason there's signs in the heavens is because all the stuff that's about to happen could be declared global warming. <laughs> so, before CNN or whoever's still on the, the, the airwaves says, this is global warming, we told you, catastrophic floods, catastrophic famine, all because of the aerosol in the can and the cars that aren't electric. That's what they're going to say. Fossil fuel. We told you. You hear it now, they're drumming that up. Well, the reason there's a sign is because God's going to make it really clear why it isn't that. A great sign in the heavens, which means you can see it. And this is what the sign is. There appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. That's Israel. 
And she was with child, Mary, a daughter of Israel. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. This is about Israel and the child that is birthed out of Israel from Mary. Verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven. Not this symbolism of Israel. A sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, referring to the authority, and on his heads were seven diadems, a reference to his global government. And his tail, the dragon's tail, swept away a third of the stars of heaven. That's why we say one-third of the angelic host, fallen angels. Lucifer was an angel. He wanted what God had. He was thrown down. And he took one-third by deception of the angelic host with him. Demons, we would call them. Fallen angels. And threw them to the earth. So he's thrown down and he's doing the throwing down. Diabolos, that's what it is. Thrower, throwing down. He was thrown down. He is throwing down. And the dragon stood before the woman, Israel, now Mary, who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. Which is why he had the killing of all the male children under two years of age. That was demonic, devilish influence. She gave birth, verse 5, to a son, a male child, who was to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she was there and would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's half of the tribulation. That's the great tribulation. This is John saying the revelation in heaven is to tell you this isn't global warming. This is divine judgment and this is divine provision because of this cataclysmic battle which has been going on from the beginning and there's a war you cannot see being acted out in real time. It involves a nation, it involves a child, it involves a great red dragon. Verse 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. You don't understand why the earth is caught as collateral damage. And they were not strong enough, the dragon and his angels. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. In other words, he was the accuser. He could access God, you see, in Job. He could bear witness. He could accuse. He could come before God but not any longer, no place for them found in heaven, the dragon and his angels. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who is called the devil, that's who we're resisting. So who is he? The serpent of old. What was he? A deceiver. So he's someone who is thrown down. He throws down angelic beings. Guess who else he wants to throw down? You. He's your adversary. Satan is the word adversary. He's your active, proactive resistor. And he has one-third of myriads times myriads at his disposal. Demons are angels. They're supernatural beings. They're created. They're not God, but they're bigger and stronger than you are. And the one who 
throws down is the serpent of old who is called the devil, Satan. And look at his, this characteristic, who deceives the whole world. So what's one of his chief operating methods? Deception. Counterfeit it. Make it look good. Deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, verse 10, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. That's what he does as well. Undermine, accuse, diminish. Oh, the only reason he's worshiping you is because you bless him. The only reason he's worshiping you is because he has his health. That kind of thing. The only reason Harry worships you is because he has whatever he has. He who accuses them before God, look at this, day and night. Now, he's thrown down in the revelation. He's thrown down during the great tribulation. Guess what he's doing now? That. He's resisting. He's lying. He's murdering. He's destroying. He's active. So the signs are meant to tell everybody who's inclined to believe a deception perpetrated by who, whatever man or network says, oh, this is the reason this is this way. It's the enemy. And resist means you stand against your enemy. You take a, a posture that says, not today. Why would that be necessary? Because the world is proactively, and he is proactively. Look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. So I guess you're wondering, and I'm wondering too, how long is it going to take us to get through this section? And I'm wrestled with that, but I don't believe it benefits you to not understand as best I can share with you, passages of Scripture that relate to this that you otherwise may not see. These are connections of truth meant to help you understand why you need greater grace. And listen, you need to think of it this way. I live on a street governed by mobsters and gangsters. And if I want to go anywhere, i got to make it down that street. They're coming. They're going to harass. They're going to manipulate. It may be subtle, because they have leverage in the world. Maybe something that they have influence over. Or it may be a day of evil, Ephesians 6, that you might resist in the evil day. What day is that? The day when you're face to face with strong enemy temptation and attack. And you know what that is? Not every day. But there are days. 1 Peter 5, parallel passage, you'll see the flavor. Verse 6, humble yourselves, 
under, that's submission, hupotasso, same word, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the proper time. Heard that before? This is Peter, not James. How do you demonstrate humility according to Peter? Because this is a persecuted church. You cast proactively, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. My humility is manifest in the fact that the burdens I carry in a world that's not helpful to me and can be very difficult and hurtful to me, I take those cares and I proactively cast, throw them on the one who can carry them because not only is it the mighty hand of God, he cares for me. So I can't bear it. I don't have to bear it. And my humility says, I don't have to. I'm not. I'm giving it to the one who can. Are you with me? Humble yourself. Now watch what this says. Be of sober spirit. Get your mind right. This is not a game. The persecution, the challenges of our fallen world... It's sobering. Be on the alert. That's head up, eyes open. It's a, it's a Greek word which means like, like you knew a robber was coming to rob your house tonight. Whatever you would do, do that. Be alert. Jesus uses it in Matthew 24. Be of sober spirit, mind right. Be on the alert, head up. Why? Your adversary. Satan. The devil, the thrown down one, prowls like a roaring lion. So is this prowling because he wants to intimidate? Well, the roaring intimidates, but the prowling has to do what a predator does in order to take the prey. This is not a game. Seeking someone to devour. You know what that is? Shred. You ever see a wild animal eat? It's not pinky up utensils. And because he's deadly, resist him. Look at this. Firm in your faith. The deceiver will deceive. The liar will lie. The issue is my convictions of my faith. Will I trust God? Will I believe God? And when I do, I'm standing with conviction and confidence. Resist the devil. He's coming. He's around. He has an organized system. He's got a lot of gangsters on your street. And you can get intimidated. But did I tell you he gives you greater grace, which is spiritual horsepower? Look at verse 9. Firm in your faith because you know that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Why do you think he says that? Because when you suffer, you're inclined to believe I'm the only one. Because you're inclined to believe I may not be in the family of God because look at how I'm suffering. And what he says is, this is an opportunity for the prowler to not only prowl, but to devour. Because I'm beginning to think wrongly. So Peter says, I want you to think right. I want you to understand that you are not alone. The brethren, the body of Christ, the family, they're suffering too. 
Don't let the enemy eat you because you stumble over the conviction that you belong to God and God cares for you. Remember, cast your care on him for he cares for you. And this is happening to your brethren who are in the world. So listen, you're not the only one struggling because of the system. They have an enemy, you have an enemy. And that enemy and that system is hurtful. When John said it a few weeks ago, the enemy of the church is the government. Persecution in the church comes from the government. Well, who is the government? Well, there's a greater hierarchy. Go back one more place and then we'll call it a day. Ephesians 6. So if you're going to resist the devil, you have to have convictions. And you have to be humble enough to know he cares for me, he sees me, I'm not alone, and I'm going to stand against the enemy who's lying to me. Listen, depression, anxiety, self-condemnation, woe is me, that's our culture. I mean, what we're not today is very tough. But listen, it's not like British toughness. It's not like the great generation toughness this is talking about. It's talking about spiritual toughness. It's talking about spiritual conviction. It's firmness of faith. And the reason I invite you to Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to land when we come back after Thanksgiving or the week after that. It says in this passage a couple of things that parallel. We're going we're to read it. Verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God. There's two main verbs in this passage you just saw. Get strength you don't have. It's a passive verb. Receive strength which consists of the power of God, the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God, that's main verb number two. So I not only have to be strong with strength I don't possess naturally, I need to get equipment necessary to succeed, called armor, spiritual armor, the metaphor, the allegory having to do with Roman armor, which has a parallel uh, application. But look at this. Put on the full armor of God. Why? Verse 11. So that you're able to stand firm. Same idea. You're going to resist? Stand firm. Verse 11. Against the schemes of the devil. That's his strategies, his tactics. Look at verse 12. This is why I called you here. For our struggle. Struggle is a wrestling match to the death. Think the Colosseum. Think gladiators. It's not till I tap out. It's until somebody dies. Our struggle is not against the world forces, or excuse me, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not human. Verse 12, it's against the rulers, that's authorities, against powers, 
against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, because that's the enemy and that's the reality, we're to take up the full armor of God so that we're able to do what? Resist. Resist in the evil day. That's temptation day. That's attack day. Having done everything to do what? Stand firm. Here's what humility does. I need God. Humility says, I submit to God. And humility says, I'm going to stand in faith against the enemy of God. I'm not going to resist him. I'm submitting. I'm not, I'm going to resist him. I'm standing. And it's no small battle. And guess what it is? It's your battle. You're not wrestling against your spouse, your employer, the government. You're wrestling against spiritual wickedness in high places. Look, when God takes his hand off, when the restrainer leaves in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when God takes the restraint away, the world comes unraveled. That's what the sign in heaven was meant to say. This is not only the judgment of God, this is the unleashing and the unfettering of the enemy of God and the people of God and those made in his image. That's what Revelation 9, the prince of the angel, the bottomless pit, it's open. It's not good. Men are tormented. They want to die. They just can't. Greater grace. For what? I'm going down a mob-infested street with gangsters who threaten me. And walking with me is the one who is greater than those in the world around me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So I don't care how big they are, how many there are, I'm good. I, uh, when I first got married, I'll close with this because I've got to go to church. Karen and I lived in a mobile home park while I went to seminary. And we would walk. And we were walking one day, and peripheral vision, as we're walking, sees this massive movement to my right, and my head whips around, and it's a Doberman. And it's a big Doberman. You know a Doberman pincher? Now, this is not the dog you want to meet in the alley. This is a dog coming, and he's dragging his leash. I just got married. And I'm going to get eaten, and she's going to get eaten. And listen, I'm not, I'm not God's gift to dogdom, but I know that I'm threatened, and it's, I'm vulnerable. And so, new husband, with a rush of adrenaline... <laughs> Here he comes, pulling the leash, ready to roll, and it was, no! I got big, I acted big, and he stopped. And he left. And I was husband for the day, I was husband for the week. That's a true story. Now, I'll tell you what would have happened if I hadn't held my ground. What always happens, they run you down and they, they bite on you. 
Your enemy is a liar, but he's not stronger. Stand up, head up, be sober, and declare your faith. Humble yourself and resist. Don't give in. Don't cave in. Don't get intimidated. I don't care how big the gangsters are. The one who is with me is bigger than they are. I'm glad for that. So resist the devil. So guess what we're going to do next time I talk to you? We're going to go through Ephesians 6. And we're going to talk about the strength and the armor because many of us will fumble and fail because the enemy gets us because we're not strong in our faith. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. It's a joy to study it. There's such treasure housed in it. And it's so relevant to our real-life journey of grace. Lord, it is your will that in this world, which is adversarial and powerful, we will be fruitful and faithful. And you've given us the assets, the spiritual horsepower, the divine support to be victorious. And we want to begin with recognizing that without you, we can do nothing. So we're humbly submitting today. Not our will, but yours be done. And by faith, with confidence in your provision and promise, we're going to stand our ground having done all to stand. And in that way, we humble ourselves and we honor you, the one who is worthy. Lord, grant us grace this week. Give us eyes to see and help from heaven. And help us to have a great week of gratitude, faithfulness, no friendship with anything that's not honoring to you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.